Orca's in the middle of, let's figure out what the possibilities are here. Maybe you can go to Paris for a month and maybe you can go back to New York and then to SF and then to LA for the rest of the year. Maybe that's a year. Maybe, maybe that's typical. Maybe that's normal. Um, and it, along the way, you get to experience all these other cultures and really immerse yourself. Zach here from Boston Speaks Up. That's the voice of David Sood. He is the founder of Orca, which is a membership-based network of furnished month-to-month accommodations and dream destinations all around the world. He's uh, currently get, making his way back down to South America to launch some new cities. And it's a pretty interesting uh, business at a time when people are increasingly not tied to a physical location um, as they work their you know nine to five day jobs and orca sort of steps in as a membership platform for nomads essentially digital nomads uh to go month to month all around the world um living working and sort of experiencing new places so we dive deep into david's time in boston he uh, went to babson college which is sort of through the network uh, that I met him, then made his way back to LA, which is where he's originally from, um, got into some different startups before eventually landing on Orca. Um, and he's basically every month moving to a new city, helping launch a new city and really building a um, pretty unique platform out there in the world. So looking forward to folks um, here in this episode and getting a, getting a chance to meet Dave and he's a really uh, special dude. Thanks. Enjoy. Cheers. Zach Servideo here from Boston Speaks Up, and I'm here with my pal, David Sood from Orca. David, how are you? Amazing. Thank you for having me, Zach. Really love being here. It's a pleasure to have you here. Um, I'm looking forward to figuring out where you are in the world today, where you've been recently, and where you're going next, which is um, very on theme for what Orca is up to for sort of this modern uh, age of digital no- nomads and folks not being tied to any one uh, physical location as they work in 2023. Uh, but could you, in your words, share with listeners what you're up to today and just give kind of a little background to kind of ground them in your current um, day-to-day reality? Sure. Um, I'll give you the the real quick background story. So I grew up in LA. I started my first company really young, kind of accidentally, that I'm sure we'll get into. Um, I fell in love with entrepreneurship pretty pretty immediately out the gate. I started a tech company after that when I was 18. I fell in love with tech kind of the same way. And since then, just building, been building different technology products for consumers. Um, now I'm building Orca, which is definitely the most different thing I've ever attempted to build. Um, it is not quite real estate. It's not just tech, though. It's somewhere in the middle where we are this technology platform that provides housing, which is a very tangible, real thing. Uh, so it's it's a little bit different than just saying, oh, I'm, I'm in tech now. Uh, it feels a little bit different anyway. Um, so yeah, these days I'm, like you said, a little bit all over the world. Uh, I've been traveling from country to country, working remotely. And if you ask me, living life. That's awesome. Cool. So we're going to un- unpack all of this. Um, and, you know, for, um, for, for listeners, like they'll like this, this podcast will eventually make its way through the sort of Bostino channels, um, which is now part of the, you know, American city business journals. And it was actually Greg Gomer, who's one of the original founders of Bostino, who's a friend of mine who introduced me to you when you were moving from Boston to Los Angeles. Um, so I kind of want to ground us in like the reality of like, wait, who's so David, like he's all over the world. Like he's from LA, like what's his connection to Boston? But we actually met through a series of connections in Boston, which I'd love for you to, yeah. to, to sort of like share a bit and then just, you know, talk about sort of your, your time there and, yeah. and, and, uh, we'll kind of go from there. Yeah. Perfect. So 
first off, shout out to Greg Gomer and all the people that made this happen throughout the years. <laughs> <laughs> we, so my, my Boston connection is going to Babson. Was 18, didn't really want to go to college. Babson offered me a great deal where I could skip six months and then come in in January. And I was like, totally sold. So I, uh, I went to Babson, uh, which is in Wellesley, just outside of Boston. And it was good. Uh, the thing I think the, the most valuable thing was for me just to have the network of people there. So I remember being in a, uh, a venture capital private equity class uh, taught by this super awesome professor who I will never forget the rest of my life, William LaPointe. And he had somebody come in from Pillar VC. And that person I ended up talking to basically just asking for uh, recommendations of like what to do in life. And they were like, oh, like check out, you know, some of our portfolio companies. Let me know if you want an intro. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. So uh, one of their portfolio companies at the time, a uh, recent portfolio company for them was a company called Venture App. And it was basically uh, WhatsApp for VCs and entrepreneurs. As far as what I can remember, that's kind of how they pitched it. And uh, really cool idea trying to take down the barriers between raising entrepreneurs and ready to fund VCs. Uh, I don't think it was totally right, but anyways, it was through Venture App, through Greg Gomer, the founder of Venture App, that uh, I ended up meeting you guys. So Pillar introduced me to Venture App and Greg, and Greg introduced me to you and Jason. Um, that's right. As I was taking a year off of Babson, uh, leave of absence, and coming back to LA to pursue uh, a company I was founding. Nice. Now, do you know how that Venture App story ends? No, tell me. So there's a big uh, sort of com real estate communication platform. Um, it's a tech business, software business that Venture App evolved into called HQO. And okay, well, and they pivoted. They pivoted into the real estate market, and they took some of that tech, um, and they found a really good product market fit, helping um, like property managers offer basically a digital communication platform for tenants, essentially, um, you know, digital message boards, digital message boards, et cetera. I'm not, at some point I have to have like Greg or Chase um, Garbarino, who's like this, you know, former co-founder with him of Boston, yeah. CEO of HQO, but that's, that's the direction they ended up taking it. Um, so good that's example of, of a pivot. Never knew that. Never knew that. I'm <laughs> glad to hear that they figured it out though, because I remember them working really hard on it. And uh, glad to hear that. Yeah, those, those that's I've been meeting recently with some of um, my sort of investor and and, and kind of board, professional board member contacts, which are you know good good contacts to have to sort of you know stress test the vision and make sure it's still sort of aligning value creation labs in, in sort of the right direction. And um, yeah. consistent theme is you know bet on the right people. And certainly yeah. like, you know, who have a, a strong passion for their ideas, but the right people can pivot and, and find product market fit. And that's exactly that's what those guys did. Yeah, exactly. I think that's true for any early stage founder is the thing you're really betting on is them. Uh, the idea, the timing, the, the unit economics, sure. But uh, at this stage where I'm at right now, it's really the founders that the investors are betting on. Yeah. So did you end up going back to Babson? Did you finish school? Like how did that story end as you sort of like launched into, all right, I'm an entrepreneur. Cause I remember you were basically like, I'm ready to go now. And you were working on, you were working on a start. You came out to LA, you'd come hang out in our, um, the fabric studios office we had in, in Venice beach and you were off to the races. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. I, I took that year leave of absence with the intention of never going back for sure. Uh, it ended up that the platform we wanted to build, like technologically, was not even that possible. Uh, so I ended up spinning it out and uh, went back to Babson, overloaded all my classes, stayed for both summers, and finished on time. Nice. So even though I took a year off, I still finished with the rest of my graduating class. So I was only on campus for like two and a half years. So it was really not that long, um, but uh, I did get the piece of paper that says I did it. So. Nice. And before we go back, but since we're sort of 
we're there right now. Let's talk a little bit about higher education right now. As, as I yeah. believe you know, like I, I've spent time at Endicott College as entrepreneur yeah. in residence and, and, and Endicott will say it like they model a bit, you know, quite a bit of their angle center for entrepreneurship after Babson. Um, and you, you really hit the nail on the head in the pre-podcast uh, Q&A where, where you spoke about there's teaching business and, and there's formulaic sort of tried and true aspects of teaching business that um, evolve, but, you know, a lot of principles don't change. And then there's teaching entrepreneurship, which increasingly is just like every day yeah. it's, you know, be agile and, and, and sort of, uh, you know, you're in a continuous evolution. How challenging is it even for a school like Babson that is a premier entrepreneurship school to really nail the entrepreneurship component of what they're offering students these days? Great question. Um, my honest answer is near impossible. Um, and that's not a dig at Babson. That's, uh, that should tell you how hard it is to understand and learn entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, I think, like I said in the pre-pod pre interview, and I'll just kind of repeat some of that. Um, I think that teaching business is relatively easy, right? Um, I have this thing for $2. I sell it for $1 or I'm sell, sell, sell it for $3 and make $1. That, that is business, right? That is a foundational sense. And you basically, that's it. You understand that concept and you're good to go. <laughs> um, I think that teaching entrepreneurship in the 21st century is <clears throat> a bit like trying to, um, uh, it's, it's, how do I describe this? A bit, uh, teaching entrepreneurship in the 21st century is, almost impossible because everything is changing every day. Uh, imagine going to an entrepreneurship school where they don't teach you about open AI and what the LLMs are about to do in the world. That would be a little bit crazy because the entire world of entrepreneurships and startups is dead focused on this one thing right now. And I, I would actually take a bet and say that there are very few professors in the world who are going to do a good job at actually teaching that and actually helping students understand the value, the value creation possibilities, um, all the stuff that comes along in adjacent to the, uh, the technological innovations we face every day, right? Um, now, I, this is all to say I liked Babson. I think it was good. I think that there, they had some classes that were amazing, like I mentioned the uh, – the venture capital private equity class with LaPointe, which I will literally never forget. It was a wonderful, wonderful class. Um, some of these more targeted classes are really good. The The part that I don't necessarily agree with is uh, having a super broad understanding. I think, yeah, is it valuable for me to know how a P&L works? Definitely. Do I need to know like super advanced managerial accounting? Not really. Like I, I know that's not really ever going to be my job. That's not my thing. That's not what I'm good at. So, like, let me not focus on that as much. Um, the uh, the from a personal perspective, I'm a marketer, right? I went to Babson, was like, okay, I'm really excited to learn more about marketing, understand all these tactics and skills that I didn't have before, um, and then I got there, and I think this is true. I'm pretty sure this is true like every school. I can't think of a school that this wouldn't be true. There is not a single class on campus, not maybe even a professor on campus, who can teach me how to buy a Facebook ad, which is really weird. As a marketer, one out of every $3 is spent on Google or Facebook, but nobody can teach me how to do that. So it's almost this dichotomy of, having all these really smart business school professors around you where they're teaching the right business tactics. They're teaching uh, the things that have been foundational for thousands of years, kind of in a more typical business school setting. And then there's every once in a while, these really pointed classes where um, even after a 20 year cycle trend, a trend cycle, it's, it's still the same business. For example, venture capital, I think hasn't really changed in the last 10, 20 years. Right. Um, so, it's hard at the end of the day, I think is the answer. It's like, it's just really hard to be teaching entrepreneurship. Uh, if you're not like changing your course 
structure every year, maybe even like every couple months, then like you're just going to be behind. And then you're putting it on the student or me or the Babson Beavers uh, to then be up to date ourselves and be learning all these new technologies and understanding all these skills ourselves, which that is entrepreneurship at the end of the day. But I think that that's not the intention of what Babson was trying to do there. So there's like mismatch a little bit of uh, Babson being this really well-respected entrepreneurship school, uh, entrepreneurship on a foundational level, not really changing. And then having a small population at the school that really wants to be at the forefront of whatever's happening next. And uh, the school not really, or no, no school being able to, to really hit the nail on the head with that one. So it's tough. It's a hard one. Yeah, it's a really hard one. And there's, there's maybe some lessons to draw on from like what happens in sort of like the cybersecurity IT audit space where it's all about credentials. It's all about like, yeah. it's all about recent um, subject matter expertise. A lot of yeah. the uh, trainers and educators in those spaces like may or may not have a college degree, um, but they have a very specific um, right. right now expertise to share with with people that um, upon those people gaining that knowledge, they're able to protect valuable assets for a company. And you could argue that, you know, cybersecurity and, and by the way like you know have some connections to some private equity a private equity group that's making a pretty big bet on cybersecurity audit and information technology upskilling sort of training platform yeah for the modern workforce because it's great for the enterprise but it's also great for individuals it's like hey yeah. you know there's it's like a, it's a very high paying trade essentially um you get these specialized educations i think the the challenge with entrepreneurship is that um it's it, there's it, you can come at it from so many angles. So I think in, at a, at a certain level you have to click layer two, you know, deeper into sort of um, areas, right? And I think you know if if there was a group of of entrepreneurs that would be you know interested in like developing a you know, generative AI um, sort of curriculum um, right now, and and sort of you know. It could go as far as even create like some sort of like a credentialing um, system like that. That could be an interesting model yeah. right now. The the graduates with those credentials at the end of that could perhaps, you know, be earning, you know, well, you know, well, high paying six figure jobs at companies that are like, tr you know, sort of trying to figure out um, how to navigate uh, the AI sort of revolution that we're in. Yeah, <clears throat> I totally agree. I, I think. Uh, if professors are doing that right now, if teachers are doing that right now, take those classes because those <laughs> classes are the most valuable thing at that school, most likely. Um, we're entering such a pivotal shift in the way that we work, the way we think. That we think. Um, we're, it's going to require a lot of human power to kind of push it forward, which I don't think people realize quite as much yet. But, um, of course, it absolutely will. Uh, just like also to, to give a quick shout out real fast. Uh, yeah. I recently went through a program called Build Space. I don't know if you're familiar with them. No. It is super, super cool though. Uh, it's a six-week program. It is completely free, run by sponsors and whatnot. Um, and it is uh, for anybody that wants to launch something, whether it be a company or a YouTube channel or a podcast series or a, a garden in their backyard. If you want to launch something, BuildSpace is a really good way to get your hand a little bit dirty if you've never done something like this before. Mm -hmm. uh, teaching the process of understanding a problem, learning from it, you know, interviewing people, learning from them, iterating on your product, relaunching, launching in public, uh, making sure that you have a community that you're building along the way. All these things are really small things that take a long time to really internalize, but they do a really good job at laying out the foundation for building, learning, iterating, and repeating. And I've just been super impressed with them. So shout out to them. Cool. Thanks. We'll have to, maybe we'll do a special cut to a little special shout out to build space in the, in the promo yeah. of this episode. Um, Another thing I want to click, I want to click into sort of your, I want you to talk a bit about like growing up in LA and 
and you know a bit of that your experience growing up in LA and then I want you to sort of like graduate that into sort of like what drew you back to LA from Boston being more of like you know you'd skew like consumer tech um you said something too in the pre-pod Q&A mm-hmm. that resonated with me like I can remember the five or so years I spent in LA like you go through your notes like I take a lot of notes in life and I'll do like yep. you'll look at them every year every 10 years um I had no I had a note about um how LA was the the center of the universe, the heartbeat of the universe, like the center of culture. And you made a yeah. comment about how, and, and so I got to, I actually totally agree. Like, I feel like LA has, um, interesting, um, it has interesting beats that, that start early on trends. Um, I don't yeah. think that always everything is authentic and real in LA. And I think yeah. there's a distinction there. Um, but I do think there is a sense of like, what could pop off across the zeitgeist globally you can get heat checks on it in yeah. Los Angeles. Um, so talk a little bit about like growing up in LA, the, the, the neighborhood you grew up in and the, you know, the, the familiarity you had with that, what it was like to kind of go and spend some time in Boston and ultimately why LA was a good spot and is a good spot to build a consumer tech platform. We actually just one final point on that. Um, uh, Tucker Cohen, who's the fo- uh, founder of, of smooth, which is, um, a tool for I just met Tucker uh, the other night. Oh, did you really? That's awesome. I really did. Yeah. Well, we'll have to make the connection on like text after that. We just did an episode together. So he's from Marblehead, Mass. I'm in Beverly now. You, you've been to my house on yeah. the North Shore. And um, he was building Smooth in Boston and probably you two probably related to each other as to why he moved with his wife out to uh, the west side of Los Angeles right now. And we talked about that a bit on the episode. So um, it, that's an awesome connection, but yeah, just, just you know, talk a bit about the LA upbringing and sort of like what's so unique about building, um, in particular consumer tech there. Yeah. Yeah. Small world, I guess. Huh? <laughs> yeah, um, so I, you know, I've been all over the world. I've been very fortunate to travel to a lot of different places. Um, and I will tell you, there's really no place like LA, um, LA and uh, these are some hot takes, I understand, so feel free to disagree. But I, I really feel like LA is the is the spearhead for culture for a lot of the world, for a lot of different things in culture. Um, fashion, media, technology. Um, again, mainly, like you said, on the consumer side. So you're not going to see an um, enormous fintech company come out of LA, I don't, I don't think. Um, uh, but you will see the Snapchats of the world come right out of LA, right? That is totally where we where we live. Um, I think it's, it's specifically young people, actually. Uh, the people who are growing up in LA, these high schoolers and middle schoolers in LA, have such a sense for where the culture is going that they unintentionally create it and then everybody else follows. Um, this happened with Snapchat where... It was really cool for me and a couple of my eighth grade buddies to download it and have a couple of our friends on there. And, you know, at the time, my parents couldn't even say the word Snapchat, that didn't, didn't even comprehend that. Um, and uh, that was a cool moment for us. And we didn't really think much of it. But now Snapchat's a multi-billion dollar corporation killing it with, you know, uh, hundreds of employees and whatnot. Um, so stuff like that where... It's a consumer. It's through and through the most consumery consumer app, right? Uh, it does not get more than that. Stuff like even even complete flops like Quibi can only come out of LA. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, for some for an entertainment mogul to spend a billion some odd dollars on his own thing, and then for it to completely flop is like one of the most LA things I could possibly think of. Actually, well, you're, uh, you're ninety six LA. Your your consulting business is all about marketing experiments. Quibi was the yeah was a billion dollar experiment, but it it it, it, it it failed forward. And I guess you know one other thing that came up since so, so thanks for letting me butt in for a second here. Is yeah. Also, like look at the multi channel network movement. Like when I first moved to LA, like twenty twelve, thirteen, fourteen. Yeah, like Maker Studios, full screen. You had the, yeah. You had like the maturation of YouTube. Um, yeah. to the point where like you look at today and you look, you, you, people talk about ad supported TV. Maybe some people refer to it as, as I would like fast, you know, free ad supported streaming TV and, and, you know, YouTube is north of 50%. The majority of 
ad supported TV viewership in the world, the the maturation of YouTube. First of all, YouTube, where's it headquartered? Like West Side, right? Playa before Playa yeah. was built up, where Facebook yeah. and 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 Fox and all in like the traditional and new school of all right. have come. But you have like this um, really interesting sort of, and, and there's plenty of failures. And the maturation of just the entertainment industry, whether it was Quibi or like missteps of MCNs of past, those multi-channel networks. But yeah. ultimately it nets out with like these really interesting, mature, like this interesting and mature streaming market where you can trace everything back to Los Angeles. Exactly. Yeah. It's kind of funny how that happens too. Um, I never thought about it until I got much older and I was like, Oh, it all leads back to LA. Never really, never really understood that. Um, but yeah, it really does. I think that we really are these, this cultural, uh, Mecca for a lot of the movements that end up taking over the world. And there are more places popping up like this. Um, I think they also happen in cycles, right? New York had its time, um, I think LA has had its, its time for a while now, a couple couple decades maybe. Um, I think like Seoul, South Korea is having a moment. Uh, there's a lot of cities in these cycles that uh, shape the future that we all live in. And I think that because of all the industry that lives in LA, that it's always at the forefront of a lot of these cycles, uh, whether it be entertainment in Hollywood or it be uh, fashion and, and all the streetwear that came out of LA or, or whether it be music and Tyler, the creator, Frank Ocean, who were just hanging out in Fairfax for years. Um, uh, all these different artistic forms, um, end up having this like cultural renaissance in LA where, uh, it happens there first and you kind of experience it in the rest of the world afterwards. Right. So now let, let's pivot that into sort of a broad view on where culture is unfolding everywhere and how it relates to Orca and what you're doing right now, because mm. all, all roads lead back to LA, but the roads leading back to LA are increasingly roads all over. So like, for example, totally. I'd love, for, I'd love to double click on, on soul and, and sort of why that's an area you think is sort of got having a moment right now. I would like, I don't think I have to argue this. It seems to me there's a lot of places having moments like Berlin, Berlin's kind of been having a moment for a while now. It's actually like, yeah. but, but what's Berlin got a strong, you know, um, relationship with LA. <laughs> uh, yeah. and I you know, remember companies like movie pilot. I remember my you know buddy of mine, he was like a dual German American citizen. He was trying to decide and he's like, Oh, I found this company movie pilot. I'm going to work for them. I'm going to go live in Berlin, use my German citizenship and decide, but I can always come back to LA. And he was like, dude, Berlin's dope. And he stayed in Berlin and he hasn't left. And this is like 10 yeah. years, you know, 10 years now. Um, so, so talk a bit about how culture is spreading and how that is sort of intersecting with this trend of people don't be need to be tied to a physical location. And the, and it's a really interesting advantage is like from an experiential standpoint, you can go experience other places and do your job. But while you're experiencing other places, well, what happens when you experience other places, you enrich yourself, you become like, an, you, you evolve as a human, you'll, and as a consequence, you'll become a better personal and professional. So, uh, right. I'd love for you to talk about that a bit and, and what, and then sort of specifically how Orca is just naturally, you know, sort of growing and what sort of like the go to market, where we're at in the go to market and where things are heading. Yeah. So I'll, I'll start this rant by saying that the reason I created Orca, the reason I decided that Orca was something I could work on every day for 10 years was because I have this obsession with culture. I'm absolutely obsessed. I think this might be the LA inside of me also, um, where I love experiencing other people's cultures. I love helping people experience my culture. I love educating people about different cultures, including my own, about Indian culture, about LA culture, whatever it might be. I have this obsession. Um, I didn't realize how much of the world has not experienced other cultures. Let me also start there. Um, it took me a, a while to come around to the fact that I think it's like 60% of Americans don't even have a passport or something like that. So it's like, uh, it's just completely off the table to begin with. Uh, 10 or 15% of Americans never leave, leave their home state. It's like, these stats are just yeah. wild to me. Um, so 
it started there. It started with this root of me being just obsessed with culture, realizing that not everybody is fortunate to experience other cultures in the same way that I have. So uh, my my personal mission here actually is just simply to help people experience other cultures. I think that, like you said, uh, I'm a much better human being just because I've traveled and experienced these cultures and have immersed myself in, in the ways of other people. And that's been really valuable in my life. Um, so if it started with my wanting to just help people experience other culture, it's kind of moved into like, okay, how do I do that in the current climate and the, and the timing of everything right now in the world? I think that the pandemic, you know, it's, it's sad, quite honestly, that it took a pandemic for us to facilitate this kind of more cross-cultural exchange. But I'm glad that it's finally happening now. Now we're at a point where hundreds of thousands and millions of people actually uh, all over the world can make an income from their laptop, basically no matter where they are. So I can go to Mexico in a tiny beach town and experience a completely different culture for two months than I would anywhere in the U.S. So things like that that were never even possible before. Now that the gate is open, we don't even know what the possibilities are. We're still trying to figure it all out. And that's actually where Orca's in the middle of, right? Orca's in the middle of, let's figure out what the possibilities are here. Maybe you can go to Paris for a month, and maybe you can go back to New York and then to SF and then to LA for the rest of the year. Maybe that's a year. Maybe maybe that's typical. Maybe that's normal. Um, and it, along the way, you get to experience all these other cultures and really immerse yourself. Another comment I want to make on this is how what immersing ourselves feels like as a human We've been so used to taking vacations, right? These one, maybe two week stints of just completely unplugging and trying to be a tourist wherever we are. Um, so if you're in Paris, one of my favorite cities in the world. That means going to the Louvre and the Eiffel Tower. And if you have three days in Paris, you're trying to fit everything into those three days. Uh, versus going somewhere for a month or for two months is just a completely different experience. Instead of like, oh my gosh, we have to go to the Eiffel Tower, we have to go to Louvre, the mindset becomes like, okay, I know I'll get to that side of town eventually. I know I'll get there. So like, I'm in no rush to go like live life and experience things kind of as the way they come. Uh, totally different mindset to how we experience that exact same place uh, in the first version in the vacation. I probably would have understood like a very surface level understanding of like, Here's the museum. Here's the tourist attraction. Here's uh, thousands of tourists all gathered to see one thing. That happens a lot all over the world. What I wouldn't necessarily understand is like, okay, what is the difference between each arrondissement in Paris? And what is the typical French food that I'm going to like? And how can I make that my own at home? Or uh, what are these different cultural aspects that you would never understand being a couple thousand miles away? Those are all really, really important things. Uh, as far as like our own human understanding. And I think that ultimately the goal with Orca, with me, with everything that I'm doing is for, like I said, to people experience more cultures. I think that that will lead to them, everybody in our society, just being happier and full of better people. And hopefully uh, I can put a little bit of a dent in diversity being valued and not just standardized. That's such a big thing for me. And um, it's something I've seen in my own life and I've seen that it hasn't happened in other people's lives. So I'm trying to make that kind of click for people. Interesting. Can we double click on that then? Uh, Cause as you're trying to make that click for people, I want to double click on it. Yeah. Uh, making <laughs> diversity more standardized. I'm sorry. So making diversity valued and not just yeah. standardized. Okay. Got it. I think, you know, I, no, I misspoke. So making it more valued and not like, it, so it's not like a formula, like it's it, right. Like I guess, yeah, like un, unpack unpack that a bit. So it's more like natural and a part of like being human. Like, like I guess, like yeah. how would you how would you describe it? Just being valued as opposed to as opposed yeah. to standardized. What I don't think that people realize, or a majority of people realize, or at least some <laughs> some portion of people realize, <laughs> is that diversity has an extreme innate value just in and of itself, having diversity of thought, diversity of background, diversity of experience, 
um, of upbringing, all these things really, really matter. Uh, when you're building a company, they matter. When you're teaching kids, they matter. When you are building a city, they matter. When you're a leader, they matter. They always, always matter. Um, my thing is that I really value diversity. I really think that it's extremely important, if not number one on my list, to make sure that the people I'm hearing from come from different backgrounds and are not just a homogenous pool of people. Um, that's really important for me personally. I didn't realize how few people think that way. <laughs> and I think that there is an extreme value in the way that I approach things like that. And so I'm almost trying to impose this feeling of understanding that there's this extreme innate value and diversity onto people. And like, listen, if you have people from different perspectives and different worldviews and different parts of uh, uh, different things, different ways of different thinking come together and work on one thing together, that one thing will almost definitely be better than what it would have been otherwise. So um, yeah, it needs to be valued and not just standardized. I think right now we have this idea of people from these diverse groups saying, oh no, diversity is important. And everybody else being like, okay, like we'll standardize that. Well, if you, if it's so important, we'll make it the standard that like, oh no, there needs yeah, to be I a see. diversity hire. There needs to be this affirmative action, right? Um, that's necessary in order to get the ball moving maybe, but I think in the next phase of where the world is going, we need to understand that there's innate value and really appreciate that value and understand how it's so valuable. Uh, and I, th I don't think that we get there until people have experienced other cultures and have experienced other ways of thinking and, and had the moment where they click and say, oh, I never thought about it like that. And that's so valuable that I can now think about it like that. Because that is a moment that I don't think people will forget. Interesting. And I I definitely have a better way I want to pose this question than I originally did in the written Q&A. Like, I think it was like, where's your favorite place to have like visited or lived in the world? But what, I, what I'm kind of curious, like based on what you just said is, what's like been the most shock of a culture that mm. you've experienced in the world? Um, kind of in retrospect right now, like of the cultures you've been experiencing. Yeah, uh, it's probably been India. And that's a lot to say because I am Indian. <laughs> um, all of my family is from India. I still have a ton of family in India. Um, we, I still go back every couple of years, basically. The first time I went to India, though, I was 11 or 12 years old. And I remember just my jaw being dropped the entire time. Um, this is right around the time where you like start being conscious of what it means to travel somewhere else. <laughs> so like, I understand like, oh, I'm going to a completely different country around the world. And that coupled with how wildly different the day-to-day -day culture is in India, I think was just a, a punch to my stomach and realizing like, oh, there are places in the world where I know nothing about these places. I am, I have zero clue about the culture in India and I am Indian. So like all these other people think that they have a clue about my culture, let alone their own culture. Um, it, it was very, very, very shocking. Um, uh, I don't know if you've been to India. Have you ever had the chance to go? Okay. No. Highly recommended at some point, actually. Um, it's one of those places that's extremely magical and also a little bit sad and also just you kind of get a, a different spiritual sense while you're there. Um, it is full of, uh, first off, just a lot of poverty, which I really hadn't seen in my life before. Um, it is um, an extremely vibrant culture in, in their food and the way they dress and uh, all of their artistic uh, uh, expressions. It is also a really difficult culture to understand. There's thousands of years of building very specific cultures that haven't really carried over to the Western worlds. Ways of thinking that 
you wouldn't really find typically uh, in LA, for example. Um, and that's valuable in and of itself for me to have exposure to like, oh, uh, tell me why you use this spice in this meal. And they all of a sudden go into a really scientific explanation, which, yeah, I... I'm not the I'm not an expert cook or anything, but do I appreciate a scientific explanation about food when I get it? Absolutely. Did I expect that to come out of this like random home chef in India? Absolutely not. <laughs> so there's these things that we wouldn't necessarily know or be exposed to as these uh, Westerners, but that have been so ingrained in the culture of these older societies for hundreds of thousands of years uh, that we can definitely learn from. So. Uh, I think I took it as it is very shocking and it was also a very eye-opening experience, the sense of like, oh, travel can be education and there is value in understanding other people's cultures. There's value in understanding my own culture and um, it added to the the sense of how I perceive value in, in all this. So that that's really great insight and it I think it makes perfect sense why to the individual digital nomad, if you will, but to the individual person um, who has a job that isn't tied to a physical location that can move about the world. Um, you know, we, we started the pre-call before we went live. You're like, you're in Berkeley right now, but you're, you know, eager to get back down to South America. And I'm like, oh yeah, my cousin JP, who I, I know if I connected you guys, you guys have to like really connect. He's constantly popping down to South America for like 10, 14 days. He does a month rental here or there. Um, I think the demand is only going to increase for the individuals to seek a solution like Orca. But to yeah. your point about the like India as an example of like a really different culture, I'm curious about like the the fulfillment of places, rentals. Like how challenging is it? And how are you on like in a in the in a scrappy startup way, how are you forging relationships with properties all around the world so that Orca can be the the, sort of the conduit through which people can get those sort of month long havens to experience those cultures? So a lot of the property managers that we work with are already professional property managers. Uh, There's a lot of timing things that are happening also. Um, American rent is skyrocketing. Uh, the entire world for the first time is familiar with like flexible living because of Airbnb, um, and the mainstream popularity of the platform. There's all these things that are making it possible for me to approach renters, uh, landlords all over the world and say, Hey, let me send you high quality tenants and, Let's make a deal to work this out. That has been way easier than I thought it was going to be, to be quite honest. (laughs) Um, There are a lot of professional property managers that understand the business, understand that if I can take occupancy from 80% to 90%, that that's a no-brainer for them. And so uh, selling to the property managers has been relatively easy. Um, Am I like going in there with like a whole cultural pitch not really uh it's more of like a hey this is like a monetary benefit for you and the flexibility and, and no risk no uh no opportunity cost type thing is it kind um, of all ups from a business model perspective is it sort of like is it performance based on your end you get a you get a piece of whatever you help fill and they're no space. so this is that's why they love me so much actually is because i don't charge them a fee i don't take any placement fees or anything like that uh, we're not a broker. We're not an agent. We are just the platform. Um, mm-hmm. I think like brokers and agents, it's a whole different world that we can get into if we want, but uh, it's a giant pool of money that like doesn't really go anywhere. It kind of just like sits in the services sector in the middle. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of savings to be had, right? Everybody wants to save on every corner and technology allows exactly that, right? So we are just coming in saying, hey, we're not a broker. We're not an agent. Give us a slight discount so we can give that discount to our, our members and we'll help you fill this up with high quality people. 
So it's been a relatively easy sale wherever we go. And then what's your and then what's your revenue model? Yeah, so the way we make money is uh, members. <clears throat> excuse me, membership based actually. Yeah. Um, so instead of charging a 15, 20% service fee like Airbnb would, we charge you one annual pass fee and then you don't get charged any fees after that. So your $1,200 rent is actually going to be $1,200 and not like 1750 after all the fees and everything. Um, and that enables you then to go all over the world within our network. So you can go really easily from Mexico to LA to Boston, wherever. Nice. So where um, do you have, like, how big is your team? Like, and, and is it you specific, like, like who are, all right. So the, the pitch to, um, you know, landlords and property managers is going smoothly is, are, is you're, you're, you're in Berkeley right now. Like maybe you can talk a bit about why you're in Berkeley, but where are the areas of your business that you're looking to staff up so that you can scale also? Yeah. So so far, it's just me and my co-founder. Um, mm-hmm. We've done literally everything manually, and it's been a lot. The The first hire we're going to make, hopefully soon, is uh, a city launcher. Basically, somebody who will go around from city to city for three to four weeks each and do everything we need to launch that city from A to Z. Um, now, three to four weeks kind of sounds like a pretty short amount of time, actually, to, to launch a city. We're not like doing a bunch of construction. We're not buying or leasing anything. So we've pretty, uh, we've gotten the process pretty squeezed down, pretty optimized for, for launching. Um, and so we can do a new place in three to four weeks. So imagine somebody just going from place to place for three to four weeks for the entire year, launching 15 places a year, call it. And that's exactly what I'm doing right now. So that's why I'm in Berkeley. Um, actually, just launched SF, but also doing a little bit of fundraising out here. Um, going to Lima, Peru after this to go launch Lima, then Medellin, Colombia to launch Medellin. And uh, these are all places that we've already gotten some demand from our members. And That's so exactly we're trying to be my more. Cousin was just in Medellin for a month. Yeah. No, people <laughs> love it. Um, yeah. We've gotten multiple members request Medellin, actually. Yeah. And so now my, we're like, okay. There's tons of go. co-working spaces because we do some tons. work together. And it, it, I, every time I was talking to him, he was in a different co-working space. And it's like, <laughs> it's already set up for digital nomads. A lot yeah, of these places. It is. Yeah. They're they're becoming very nomad friendly. The, they understand that good Wi-Fi is kind of a a, a make or break. Table uh, so, stakes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so they're 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 getting on it. Um, and specifically, a place like Medellin, Colombia, is just so cheap that mm-hmm. if you wanted to spend twelve hundred bucks on rent there, you could get a nice luxury one bedroom in like a perfect part of town, and uh, you could do it good. <laughs> and you can um, eat really well and, and enjoy really some well. drinks and and not yeah. break the bank. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I think that speaks again to the timing aspect of this all of like uh people being able to work remotely and then cities like New York and SF just being absurdly expensive to live in. Um so actually, you know, to give you a little story on how we ended up launching some of these places. We yeah first tested this concept in Mexico. So we launched in Playa del Carmen and Tulum in Mexico, just south of Cancun. And I talked to a bunch of people, a bunch of people who were like, oh, this sounds great. I would love to come to Mexico for a month or two. This is within my budget. I can totally do it. But we've already got this lease in LA or in SF or New York. And I can't ditch my lease. I can't pay twice. I can't, I can't find a subletter. You know, kind of a, a pickle of a situation. And so we were basically like, okay, well, like, why do you have a lease? Like, why does that exist? Why, why don't you live in a flexible place in SF or in New York? Mm. Uh, and so we just decided to start building that infrastructure. So if you yeah. wanted to live in SF and SF is your home, you can still live in San Francisco in a nice studio in Hayes Valley and still be within our network to then go travel wherever else. So you're not committed or tied down to one place. Um, and so the idea was like, okay, now you can live in SF for as long as you want to, and you can still be within our network and you can go wherever else. Um, so we've started launching places like that. We've also started just kind of listening to our members of like where they want to go. 
that's why we're going to places like Medellin and Peru. Um, so yeah, we're, it's, it's happening quickly. I'll say that, but, uh, it's exciting because so many people are so excited about what we're, what we're doing. I imagine it's difficult to like, like the coordination of it all, like is what I'm, I'm getting at and what I want to get at here. And like, how much notice uh, does someone have to typically give or, you know, to say, okay, I'm, I'm part of the network. I'm in San Francisco for a month. Is it this, you know, in two weeks, I'm going to go to Medellin. And, and is that part of what your tiered structure can be? Like, like at certain tiers, you, you can, you can make a move within two weeks, you know, at, at the, you know, at the low, you know, at the lowest tier, you have to give, it, it, I, is that even making sense? Notice. But like, um, just imagine that there's almost a price because there's a premium you could put on, uh, right. making the, making the, the, the change in like a week. Cause I know from my cousin's perspective, all of a sudden I talked to him the other day, he's in Panama. I was like, what are you doing yeah. in Panama? He's like, I decided to go to Panama. And so like, a lot of these people, <laughs> I'm like, okay, he decided to go to Panama. Like, which by the way, you really got to talk yeah. to JP. I feel like, you know, he'll, yeah. he'll be a good, We'd he'll be a good ally. Click. <laughs> yeah, you would click. <laughs> yeah, no, it's definitely my kind of vibe. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I, we've never thought about that exactly that way before. Okay. Um, we, we really aspire to be the flexible solution. And right. uh, I want to have like, the most con- concierge-esque aspect to that or like if you want to move in two weeks let's let's move you in two weeks let's find you a place for you to get to um that being said the person who's renting through us typically gives us like two to four weeks in advance uh okay. they they usually know if they're going to stay in the same place or if they're going to somewhere else um and that's basically the only decision you have to make when you're living through orcas because the rest is decided for you like we pick the best places with the best hosts, the best Wi-Fi, all that's like pre-vetted. So it's really just like, where are you going to go? Um, and uh, if you talk to your cousin or any other uh, nomad type, they'll tell you that is the biggest pain of like going from place to place is like doing all the homework before you actually go to that place. Right. Uh, the hours and hours and hours you spend looking and scrolling through photos and reaching and contacting hosts and etc. It just sucks. So trying to make the living rental experiences as easy as a hotel booking or a flight booking, um, or just simple and straightforward, you know what you're getting. Um, man, I wanted to make a point, but I totally blanked you on. Well, we're talking about the flex, we're talking about the flexibility of, yeah. of, of sort of, you know, I was getting into maybe more complicated like subscription tiers and i think your point is you want to be flexible to everyone and and kind of get to two four weeks out almost offering this like white glove service which yeah go ahead yeah let me me, yeah exactly (laughs) let me let me explain to you kind of where i envision the future of this going excellent Um, let's do it we're not we're not talking about like okay perfect perfect yeah this is not like a close future let me just preface by saying that i understand that you know, I'm on a, I tell people now that I'm on a hundred year, hundred year journey. Yeah. I asked you five after, years out and you're like, you got to give me like 50 years, you know, at least yeah. not hundred. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that, that really is the case because, uh, I'm trying to dig into a consumer behavior that's been so ingrained in our society, in every society for like hundreds of years that only now we're coming around to the technological shift to be able to pivot that. And it's going to take a while. <laughs> I have already yeah. Said yeah. So, um, well, I, uh, the ultimate goal for us is to like help people rent easier, better, faster, cheaper, right? All of the above. Um, so let me just give you a sense for where I want to take this. Let's say that Zach really likes tennis. He just loves tennis. Okay. Um, I'll use myself as an example because I actually do love tennis. Yeah. So I would really love to follow the major tournaments around the world. That's like one of my lifelong dreams is like go to Paris for the French, go to London for Wimbledon, come to the U S for U S just do a little tour. Exactly. Do the whole thing. Right. Yeah. Uh, It would be so much fun. Total dream of mine. And so eventually we will be able to put Dave in on the, on the tennis track within Orca and say, okay, if you want to be on the tennis track, we already know you're going to go to Australia for a month and then you're going to go to Madrid and then you're mm-hmm. going to go to the U S and then 
you're going to go here, 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 here. We already have the it- entire itinerary. In fact, now we can book that entire year up front for you. Mm-hmm. And the entire 12 months is like locked in for you. Mm-hmm. So forget about like, oh, where am I going next? Oh, when do I have to be there? Like the entire thing is done for you and it's all according to your interests. Mm-hmm. So that could be the F1 track. It could be the scuba diving track, which I really want to do one day. It mm-hmm. could like, we could just do a different track every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the possibilities are endless. The idea is basically like if your income is not tied to your physical location, then your physical location should be tied to your interests. Mm-hmm. And if you can follow your interests around the world, you're going to be a much happier person in life. I love that. I'd definitely get on the soccer track. I'd go to all the top yeah. soccer, soccer, soccer. Let's do it. Let's put you on. <laughs> yeah. Get me on there. Um, no, that was well articulated and that's a good, that's a good vision. Um, I kind of have a question that's, brewing in my head it's kind of it was, it was it's like fading i need to pull it back uh, but it's sort of along these lines of like i was trying to guess where you might go um with mm. that and i love like the sort of like interest tracks but one other direction that probably i don't know how feasible it would be but we're talking 100 years out so let's just go with it yeah what about like humans desire to own real estate and the and the mm-hmm. and and is there like a is there a shared ownership, sort of decentralized sort of ownership structure or ability for people to be a part of a network of real estate assets so that while you're a part of the network, you're actually like, you know, over time, like, you know, have appreciation in sort of like a collective group of real estate assets around the world. Like, is there an opportunity to flip that on its head through Orca? Totally. Totally. I think that, there's a couple of businesses coming up right now that are trying to work in exactly this. Okay. My perspective is, um, well, like uh, today I have a friend uh, named Caleb who's started a company called World House. I've seen a couple other networks of like fractional ownership com- uh, housing companies. Mm-hmm. Um, even Newman is buying a bunch of real estate up and then going to rent it out and somehow allow people to or something like that. I don't know exactly what he's up to. But there are a lot of people kind of like tinkering with this idea of like how do you rent and also own and also like find the best of both worlds. Um my perspective is that owning an asset like real estate is legally very complicated if you're not doing it straightforwardly. Mm-hmm. Um until legislation catches up with fractionalized ownership and tokenization and all that uh it's just going to be really hard and like hours and hours and hours of legal work to get anything done um renting on the other hand is a little bit more lax especially shorter term where there's less risk and no crazy credit scores or anything like that um and so it's it's a slightly different thought process behind uh uh the experience for the person like is it just simply, oh, I'm renting this place or is there like some sort of ownership uh, mentality there? But uh, I think eventually we'll get there. Eventually we'll get mm-hmm. to a place where uh, renting um, renting a place in the Orca network, for example, earns you X tokens that you can use to buy real estate assets within our network or something like that, right? Cool. Uh, where yeah. as as you participate, you become an owner also. In some way. Cool. Yeah. That's where, yeah, it, it just seemed prudent to kind of bring up the decentralized sort of finance potential of, of, of things. Um, one other question that I asked you pre podcast, like I want to double click on, it's always good for, we get like this certain feedback you get from listeners, like, oh, like lessons from entrepreneurs is always big. Like you've been building businesses since you were a teenager. Um, what are some of the things that, you, you know, wish you had known or, you know, think, you know, mistakes or things that you made that you, um, you know, would like to share as cautionary tales, perhaps to young entrepreneurs. Maybe there's some young entrepreneurs from Babson that will be listening to this right now. Like what would you, what would you say to them? Oh, I hope you are. I hope if you're a young entrepreneur from Babson that you're listening right now. Um, (laughs) let me think, man, this, this is hard because I have so much advice. (laughs) I'd say 
The number one thing that I wish I did a little bit better when I was younger is really understand where you're at and understand your surroundings and understand your network and understand what strings you can pull and what leverage you have in the world. Um, I think that if you want to build something, just go start building something. Uh, that's my first piece of advice. Along the way, though, uh, be considerate or at least uh, have an understanding of, like I said, of your context. If you, like me, are in Boston and it's a super not consumer-friendly town and you are trying to build a social media app, reconsider. <laughs> reconsider See, what you're doing or reconsider where yeah. you are. One of either. Yeah, two things. exactly. Yeah, yeah right? Because... <laughs> It is, it is really hard. It's a truism that it's really hard to build uh, uh, an, a technology business outside of San Francisco, you know, the same way that it's hard to build a consumer company outside of LA, the same way that it's hard to build a fintech company outside of New York. It's not impossible. It's definitely doable. Is it like 10x harder for absolutely no reason? Like, yes, definitely. Uh, as an entrepreneur, to be doing everything to de-risk and... And the people that you have surrounding the people that you're going to help for. Um, that's all part of it. So just be extra considerate about like what you can leverage. If you if there's something, if you have a proprietary uh, point of leverage, uh, let's say um, I have no idea. Let's say your dad is a journalist at the local newspaper, right? you already have an understanding of like, Oh, can I build something for a newspaper because I have a built-in customer? That is a, a proprietary point of leverage that nobody else or few other people will have that you already have an in at. Uh, and that's something I never really took into account. I was always just like really focused on like what I wanted to build and the problems mm -hmm. that I saw. And uh, if, if other people didn't get it, I was like, I'll oh, screw them. They didn't get it. Uh, <laughs> and I think at, some level I was right at some level I was stupid because like uh I was it's 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 that old, other true old truism of like do you want to be right or uh do you want to be happy uh I, I think it's like you can be right and just fight your way through to the death no matter what the cost <laughs> or you can be happy and build something that people are are pulling at instead of you having to push at at other people um it's a big that's a big difference in terms of starting a company i'll tell you the the uh the the demand side either pulling or pushing should be a really big indicator as to you're you're on the right track or not um and that's something that took me a while to understand also so yeah nice. do something that you get pulled on and make sure that you understand your surroundings yeah that's great um so the, let's let's go deep the if you could be remembered for anything in life, what would it be? Yeah, this is a hard one for me. I think that I changed my answer like four times before <laughs> I actually answered, by the way. Um, I think that the answer is I want to be remembered for helping people create great memories. Um, I think that's the recurring theme in a lot of my work in my life is that I love helping people have better lives and experiencing more fuller, better, more educated, well-rounded lives. Um, I think that's just really important for society. It's really important to me uh, and my family. So I think that's the thing. And I think that even stuff like Orca, with it being grounded in my desire to help people experience more cultures and help diversity kind of gain a footing in our society, um, that's all part of it. It's all part of making great memories. It's all part of, uh, being a, a, having a better life and a more fun person and, and however you want to define that. But I think that if I can, if I can be a part of a memory that you never forget, even indirectly, I'll be pretty happy with that. I love, I think that's super well put. I really, I really love that. I'm actually making a note of it. I'm like, that, that's, that's, that's a, highlight clip right there, David. So it shouldn't, it shouldn't come as much of a surprise. I feel like what your challenge to listeners would be, but can you share what, yeah. what's your challenge? What's your challenge to listeners? Yeah. My challenge is 
go experience a culture that you're not super familiar with. Um, I love doing this with my friends that know nothing about Indian culture. I'll like take them out to an Indian restaurant. I'll order everything off the menu basically and just tell them a little bit about my culture and my what what our values are and, and our we practices. We did this and, together. Right. And we did. Yeah. yeah. We actually <laughs> went to an Indian restaurant and we were just like talking about it. Yeah. Uh, and it's actually, it's a ton of fun for me. I think yeah. it would be a ton of fun for whatever friend you're thinking of right now that you don't mm-hmm. really know a lot about their culture. So uh, go invite them out for dinner. Go take them out and ask them a million questions about their upbringing and their culture and everything about them. And I think that you will walk away a much happier, more fulfilled person, even excited about that culture, maybe. And they will also walk away like happy to tell you something about their own culture because it does make us, it makes us feel a little human, you know? And right. I think it pulls on your heartstrings a little bit. And that's um, so always a bonding moment for people. So I think that, yeah, if, uh, hopefully that's a part of the happy memories that you don't forget. That's great. So in terms of connecting with you and connecting with Orca, like get, give some plugs for like where folks should go and, and, you know, what, you know, and what maybe to, um, you know, expect maybe in the near term. Yeah, for sure. So, um, as far as what to expect, you can expect me to keep doing this. Um, I'm not going anywhere. I, uh, we're launching a new destination every three to four weeks. Uh, and if you are thinking to yourself right now, wow, Orca sounds amazing, but they're not in the place I want to go. Just DM me and I will launch in the place where you want to go. Uh, cause we're super member focused like that. Nice. So, uh, yeah, you can find me on every social platform at Dave and Sood. Um, I'm not on the photo based social platforms a whole lot. I uh, just don't enjoy that much. But I'm on Twitter way too much for my own good, so DM me there. Um, and uh, you can find Orca at orcapass.com. Uh, and we're at, at orcapass on every social platform. So, so find us there. And yeah, I, you know what? If you have any inclination of wanting to talk to me at all for any reason whatsoever, DM me. I want to I talk to you. I love talking to people and uh, love helping people however I can. So let's do it. Amazing. David, this has been a pleasure. It's been good reconnecting with you today. No, this has been so much fun. I'm a longtime listener, first time caller. So this is exciting <laughs> for me. Uh, it's been weird, like literally listening to BSU since episode one. <laughs> and now after years of talking about it, finally being here and it's just been so exciting and full circle. So I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm grateful to have you here. You've been, um, you've become a good, you've become a good friend and, um, I've admired you working your ass off over the last few years. <laughs> and it's, it's, I'm grateful to, to get a chance to, you know, share the, share the mic with you today and looking forward to getting this story out to the, the community. Absolutely. This is so much fun. Thanks. Well, have, have a great day. I hope everything's a success in Berkeley. Thanks. I appreciate you. Appreciate you, David. Cheers. Cheers, Boston.